Good evening again. <laughs> and welcome to the second lecture of the first week of the 1985 Rare Book School. The t-shirt shop will be open after this lecture for those who uh, have not yet taken advantage of what has to be described as an unusual opportunity, if nothing else. There will be a reception immediately following the lecture tonight in room 523 Butler, to which you are all very cordially invited to attend. We have finished the videotape from punch to printing type, and there will be a sneak preview of that tomorrow afternoon at 5.30 in this room. It lasts 48 minutes, and there will be a reception following the showing in the Book Arts Press. That's room 502. That will be at about 20 after 6 tomorrow evening. All of you are most cordially invited to attend that as well. Otherwise, it only remains to say that we're very glad to have Mr. William Scheide back with us again this afternoon, an old friend and a good one. Thank you very much, Terry. As I understand it, this time he wanted me to talk about the history of the Shady Library. And that involves family as well as books. I hope a minimum of the first and a maximum of the latter. Well, uh, the uh, history of the Shady Library is, as it exists today, is, uh, the library as it exists now has been is simply the creation by three generations of collectors my paternal grandfather, my father, and myself. Since my grandfather died over six years before I was born, my knowledge of him is restricted to occasional documents and family traditions. It is therefore often difficult for me to be precise about events that occurred a century or more ago, which are relevant to the, the, the history of the library. Uh, but since I am conceited enough to think that it should be an interesting subject for book lovers, be they librarians or otherwise, I am happy to accept Terry Bellinger's kind invitation to talk about it tonight. And so I naturally will start with my grandfather. And his name was William Taylor Scheide. He was born in 1847 and died in 1907. His birth occurred during the Mexican War. And his father, who was a great Whig, and who named some of my grandfather's brothers, Henry Clay Scheide and Millard Fillmore Scheide, noticed who was running things down there in Mexico at, in 1847 and wanted to name his son Zachary Taylor Scheide. But Mama kicked, as I understand it, and they settled for Taylor, but not for Zachary. But for that, my name might have been Zachary, since I was obviously named for him. So by an intervention of my great-grandmother, I, be I became William rather than Zachary. On the whole, I um, prefer that. Um, <laughs> At any rate, William Taylor Scheide grew up in Philadelphia. I ask you to picture a schoolroom in Philadelphia in the late 1850s. The teacher looks out over the students, sees a boy not paying attention, his head buried in a book. The teacher asks the boy a question. Receiving no response, they, uh, they, they head, the boy's head doesn't move. The student is oblivious to the teacher. And so the teacher goes around behind him to see what's going on. And he sees he's reading one of the novels of Sir Walter Scott. And the teacher then says to the class, this boy is learning more from what he's reading than he would if, if, if he were listening to me. That boy is my grandfather, needless to say. 
He was spending his lunch money on books at the age of 10, 11, or 12, something of that kind. The story is not more precise as it reached me, two-generation gap, but I can well believe it. I don't know much more what he was doing except reading until the city of Philadelphia got a great scare when he was 16 in the year 1863 when General Lee marched north from Maryland. My grandfather was called up into the army, but he didn't see any active service because after a while General Lee found it more desirable to go back into Maryland and Virginia, and the, gr the group that my grandfather was in was disbanded. Shortly afterwards, he enrolled in a school for telegraphy. He wanted to become a telegraph officer. After being there for a few months, he went to Pittsburgh and became a railroad telegrapher. He stayed there for a year and a half or so. There's a book still in the Shidey Library inscribed by him, William T. Shidey, September 1865. This is the earliest dated signature of his I've run across. That book is The Chemical History of a Candle by Michael Faraday. Doesn't seem much like telegraphy, but it does remind me that he may have seen a lot of oil barges coming down the Allegheny River which formed the Ohio with the Monongahela in Pittsburgh. And perhaps he was more interested in illumination than he was in telegraphy. At any rate, he resigned his job at the railroad, and sometime not long after that, he went back to Philadelphia and enrolled in the engineering department of the Polytechnic College of Pennsylvania. He graduated in July of 1868. Later that same month, he went, I suppose, back to Pittsburgh, and then he went up the Allegheny River and discovered a little town on the remote upper reaches of that stream in northwestern Pennsylvania called Tidiute, in the middle of the oil country. He settled down there and found a job as a clerk in a small firm. For 21 years, he pursued the oil business, mainly in oil pipeline transportation, but also now and then as a producer, principally as a producer on the side, I guess. Officially, he was in one company or another engaged in transporting oil by pipeline. It was a rather active and ruthless period. I imagine he was quite busy, but he found time to get married and raise two children as well. In the middle of all this, though, somehow or other, he assembled a library, something like 1,500 volumes. In 1874, he took the time to write a catalog of it. No one has ever known in my generation where my grandfather ever got any of these books. I don't know the name of one American dealer from whom he purchased the books. There must have been somebody in Philadelphia. That's where he grew up. But who that somebody was, I have no idea. And here he was in Tidiute. I doubt if there were many rare book bookstores in Tidiute. In the midst of all this oil activity in this remote place in the Allegheny River, he had a, uh, 11 headings in his catalog for his 1,500 volumes. Biography, essays and reviews, books of prints, general literature, poetry, Law and politics, novels and tales, periodicals, history, science, travel and adventure. Some of these sections are quite extensive. For example, general literature, novels and tales and periodicals. The latter had many very remarkable files, including English newspapers stretching back into the 18th century. He had so many books, in fact, that the people in Tidiute heard about it and said, by any chance, can I borrow one of your books? Some cheap novel, for example, of which he had a fair number but maybe some more serious work for all I know. At any rate, there were enough requests so that he printed a little card saying, borrowed from William T. Shidey and such and such a date to be returned one week later. We still have one or two of those cards. And then finally he got tired of it after a few years and said, 
closing my library, would you please return all of my books to the office where I'm working by such and such a time? Some years later, after he'd moved to Titusville, Pennsylvania, he became chairman of the board of the local public library and had a great interest in it in his later life. To go back to his own library, categories such as biography, books of prints and history, very like, likely served as um, stimulants and reference for the further development of the collection. A number of these headings, including biography, essays, and reviews, books of prints, novels, and tales, periodicals, and history, are now largely dispersed. Overlapping occurs in general literature and poetry, both of which contain plays. The former group contained a varied assortment, including at least one play, books on religion, 14 Bibles, and reference works such as Dibden's Library Companion, a likely source of inspiration for future purchases. The, um, Dispersed categories such as biographies, essays and reviews, novels and tales and history indicate that this is essentially a reading library. The first edition is not essential, and I can remember that even as a reading library, many novels and tales were sadly deficient, and that they were printed in small Victorian type. I would not want to read them, even with my eyes being much better than they now are. Some of the books were certainly noteworthy. And biography, there was Barnes's Edward III, printed in 1688. The play in general literature was Massinger's New Way to Pay Old Debts, 1633. And I would not expect a recent graduate of telegraphy and engineering schools to be reading a 1561 edition of Calvin's Institutes in Latin, in Tidiut in 1874. Under poetry, my grandfather described Milton's Paradise Regained in Sab Samson Agonistes as the original edition which it is, namely 1671. And under law and politics, he listed a collection of the colonial laws of Pennsylvania with a note, B. Franklin printer. History included the German edition of Hartmann Schadel's Nuremberg Chronicle, 1493, probably the first incunabulum to enter the Shady Library. It's still there. Under science was a book called Franklin's Electricity and, Franklin and Travels and Adventures included Monard's Joyful News Out of the Newfound World 1596, Harris's Voyages, 1705, and Patrick Gass's 188, London imprint of his account of Lewis and Clark's journey. Such titles indicate clearly an interest in books as cultural artifacts. How my grandfather acquired that interest at the age of 27 in Tidiute, Pennsylvania, in the midst of his ruthlessly burgeoning oil industry, I do not know. By 1881, my grandfather's pipeline company had been swallowed by the omnivorous Standard Oil. So with his wife and two young children, he moved to Titusville, Pennsylvania, about 15 miles west of Tidiute, to become the general manager of the National Transit Company, Standard Oil's pipeline subsidiary in Oil City, 18 miles down Oil Creek, to which he commuted each day by train. He retained this position until 1889, when, 42 years old, in full health, and with every prospect of a bright business future, he resigned. Many years later, I found myself on a Pullman train with a very old man, about 85, who in those days, in those days being the 1930s, would buy a big hotel and run it and go to the director's meetings and all that kind of thing. And he said to me, I've never understood why your grandfather retired down there in Oil City. He really ran things there. I told my father about that, and he said, well, that kind of man never would have understood it. On another occasion, at a luncheon in New York, 
One of the other guests was Mr. John D. Rockefeller, Jr., father of, for of the former vice president and his many brothers. I introduced myself and said, did you ever know the name of my grandfather? Well, I certainly did, and I'm very glad to meet you. Very pleased to know that you're of that family. When my grandfather retired, he went for a long trip to Europe with one of his business friends. He made the acquaintance of a Florentine book dealer, Leo Oschke, whose daughter married into the Rosenthal family and, and produced further book dealers, one of whom is in this room, Mr. Bernard Rosenthal of San Francisco, a grandson of Mr. Oschke, as I am a grandson of Mr. Scheide. Uh, from Oschke, my grandfather began to buy thousands of medieval and Renaissance documents, wills, contracts, deeds, and other records of how people carried out necessary transactions in former times. On returning home, he taught himself the ne necessary languages and paleography, sat down and read them and annotated them. That is, he put them in the folders, labeled the outside, what this document was, what it was all about. Here we may mention the house he built on Main Street in Titusville. The front door opened on a hall with a parlor to the left and a living room to the right, which led at the back to the dining room, which also connected to the hall at its, at its right end. Another door at the left end of the hall, at the foot of the staircase, led into the library, heavy with bookshelves. But my grandfather evidently had a bad habit. He liked to smoke cigars. My grandmother did not like the smell of cigars, and this situation created a problem. What finally happened was that my grandfather was permitted to build a, quote, smoking room, unquote, under the far end of the library. Actually, it was a new wing of the house with exterior walls on three sides. Swinging glass doors contained the offending smoke, and it had its own gas fireplace and chimney. But now, new, and if I understand it correctly, more serious problems developed. The combustion in the gas fireplace was not complete, and the updraft in the chimney was defective. A metal ventilator turned by the wind was installed at the top of the chimney to promote a better updraft. In this room, surrounded by clouds of cigar smoke and partly burned gas, my grandfather would sit for hours reading and transcribing his medieval documents or other books. It is not surprising that he acquired headaches. For relief, he took homemade pills produced by a man whom my father called a quack. As early as in his 50s, my grandfather began to have heart trouble, and at the age of 60, he suffered a severe heart attack and died. My father blamed the gas and particularly the headache pills for undermining his basically healthy heart. Upon my grandfather's death, the library passed to my father, and one of the first things he did was to compile a new catalog. This reveals that in the 33 years since 1874, the library began to focus more clearly in the direction it has followed ever since. In fact, the classification could be reorganized under the following eight headings, which really are valid to this day. One, manuscripts. Two, autographs. Three, Bibles. Four, incunabula. Five, voyages and travels. Six, Americana. Seven, books famous in science, literature, and so forth. And eight, reference. Certainly there are important overlaps in these categories. Autographs like manuscripts are certainly written by hand. Many Bibles are written or printed before 1501 and are therefore also manuscripts or incunabula. It was the voyages and travels of Columbus, published before 1500, uh, that created Americana. But these categories have nevertheless hardened over the years and still represent the general thrust 
of the Shardy Library in the 20th century. In 1907, there were about 50 manuscripts, including a very passably illuminated 13th century Latin Bible and a nice Wycliffe New Testament in English. Among a dozen, more or less in Cannabula, um, was a good copy of the first edition of Euclid. Enough old books were present to indicate that William T. Shidey's interest in old books as cultural artifacts, which was already represented in the 1874 catalog, had increased. This interest gave a crucial impulse and inspiration for the next stage in the development of the collection. And now we pass to my father, John Hinsdale Shidey, 1875 to 1942. One of the earliest of my father's activities of which I'm aware was photography. Before he went to college, he had a dark room in the basement of the Main Street house in Titusville. I think his first diploma was from a photographic correspondence school. Uh, he remained a, um, an avid photographer all, all during his life. Um, in the fall of 1892, he entered the College of New Jersey at Princeton University as other Titusville boys had done and were to do. There, sometime during the next four years, he heard a professor lecturer say something to the following effect. The two most important events in all modern history are these, the invention of printing and the discovery of America. This re remark remained with my father throughout his life and can be called crucial for the development of the incunabula and Americana sections of the library to their present preeminence. After my father's graduation in 1896, he worked until 1903 for the Ohio Oil Company, which later became Marathon Oil Company and is now, I believe, part of U.S. Steel. Early in 1904, a good thing and a bad thing happened to him. The good thing was that he got married. The bad thing was that he promptly contracted tuberculosis. He went with his new wife to the sanitarium at Saranac, New York, gave up smoking, he'd been a pipe smoker, and eventually recovered sufficiently to return to Titusville. But he never recovered the vigor and robustness of his earlier years and never returned to active business. In addition, he soon encountered further tragic events. As noted above, in 1907, his father died suddenly and prematurely. And early in 1909, his wife produced a stillborn daughter, their first child, and she herself died giving birth. Such was the family background in which my fa father wrote out his catalog of my grandfather's books and himself became a collector. In 1910, the Titusville Shides consisted of four people, my grandmother, my father, and his younger sister and her husband, Gertrude Shidey and James H. Caldwell, Jr. In that year, they traveled to England with their car on the Lusitania. One day, my father was engaged in bibliographical research at the Bodleian Library in Oxford probably in Duke Humphrey's room, when there was a disturbance and he looked up to see Theodore Roosevelt being a give, given a tour of Oxford highlights. The ex-president had just finished an African tour and most recently had attended the funeral of Edward VII. At any rate, this story shows that in 1910 my father was already seriously interested in old books. At least three important purchases marked the year 1911. Luther's 1522 September Testament, Eliot's Indian Bible, with an interesting provenance involving Edward Everett, and the 1649 Cambridge Platform, which is the earliest English-American imprint we have. My father was now frequenting the New York book world, both dealers, for example, Lathrop C. Harper, 
and auctions where the gargantuan operations of people like Folger and Huntington terrified him. Modestly, he secured a half-leaf of a Gutenberg Bible and thought to himself, I'm sure that will be all I will ever be able to acquire of that. Trips to New York also afforded opportunities to become better acquainted with Miss Harriet Hurd, to whom he had been introduced when she had made a trip to Titusville to visit a friend who was an aunt of my present wife. Miss Hurd and my father were married in 1913, and I followed along the next year. At about that time, he designed the family book plate with the inscription, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, surrounded by a keystone border. In this way, he combined what, it, what has become uh, the three greatest strengths of the library. Bibles, the quotation is, from, is John 8:32, In Cannabula, printing in addition, editions of thousands of copies would allow falsehood, but also truth, to become known to more people than had previously been possible. An Americana, possibly he was thinking of Francis Scott Key's chauvinistic phrase, the land of the free, and perhaps even narrowing it to his own beloved Pennsylvania with the Keystone border. Great books began to arrive in the library, such as a fine copy of the first Geneva Bible, 1560, the beginnings of a fine collection of 16th century Mexican imprints, and an 1859 edition of Origin of Species. In later years, my mother told me that when she began to understand the growing significance of the library, she lamented to her husband that he had to go to a safe deposit vault in a bank to enjoy his books. Why don't you get a safe, she asked. So he did, installing it in a corner, in a corner of the smoking room. We still use it. Because my childless aunt and uncle spent much time away from Titusville because of his oil business in Illinois and Oklahoma, my father, with his wife and son, continued to live with his mother in the Main Street house in Titusville. But when my grandmother died in 1921, a move became necessary. My aunt and uncle had essentially returned to Titusville. But more importantly, my grandmother had reasonably enough decided that, since my father had inherited the library, my aunt should inherit the house. As luck would have it, <coughs> a very commodious house and yard became available in a few months on the other side of the same city block on Washington Street. My father bought it and immediately began extensive renovations, principal one being the addition of a large and fireproof library. Moving of books and family to the new quarters on Washington Street occurred in December 1922. My aunt and uncle moved into the Main Street house in early 1923 after accomplishing a few renovations of their own. The library was now clearly headed into its greatest, greatest period. Even the house alterations and additions in 1922 did not stop my father from buying a set of four Shakespeare folios. And in early 1924, the momentum reached a peak with a trip of Dr. A.S.W. Rosenbach to Titusville to deliver personally the Brindley Ives Ellsworth copy of the 42-line Bible commonly ascribed to Johann Gutenberg. The implications of that trip were unmistakable. Though my father was one of the most unassuming and modest of men, he embarked boldly and irrevocably upon the creation of a great library and the responsibilities thereunto appertaining. Great book after great book was added. I will mention a few highlights. As to manuscripts, it required acquired in 1931 the only complete Wycliffe Bible in this country, a manuscript of about 1,400. 
In 1938, the Blickling homily is a collection of sermons in Anglo-Saxon, the only Anglo-Saxon book in this hemisphere. He thought of it in one way as a piece of Americana, a means of tracing the roots of H.L. Mencken's The American Language a little deeper into the past. In 1935, he was inspired to send an expedition of two men to Egypt in the hope of smuggling some biblical papyri out of that country, as other people, such as Chester Beatty, had done. They were able to make contact with a seller and did indeed succeed in smuggling the leaves out of Alexandria while Mussolini's Ethiopian War was going on. They turned out to be a, a section of the Greek text of Ezekiel of about A.D. 200. My father was a little disappointed that they were not New Testament, but reconciled himself to the publication of, quote, the shiny biblical papyri, Ezekiel. If now we turn to Incunabula, we may brazenly start by looking only at imprints dating before 1460. Of these, there were at least six, of which three are fragments and three relatively complete. The latter are the 42-line Bible, a 1455 indulgence, and the unique Latin Calixtus Bull against the Turks, dating most probably from 1456. The smallest fragment is of the 36-line Bible, the next largest from a Donatus in the early stage of the 42-line Bible type, suggesting a date of about 1453, and the largest about three-quarters of a double leaf of the 1457 Psalter, with two of the famous colored initials. There is also, inter an, inter there is also an interesting, if small, collection of so-called Custer fragments. Whether any of them were printed by the legendary Dutch printer before 1460, I have no idea. Later important in Canabula were a 1465 Subiaco Lactantius, one of the very first books printed in Italy, the Holford copy of the Fuss and Schaefer 1462 Bible, a particularly gorgeous book, a Catholicon dated, 60, dated 1460, of course, but with a late watermark, a 1472 Foligno Dante, one of the first editions of Dante, and four Caxtons, including a complete 1481 Mirror of the World, and a 1477 Dixon Sayings with several library stamps reading British Museum duplicate. There are, of course, many first editions of ancient authors, for example, Caesar's commentaries. Here we should acknowledge the participation of other members of the family. In 1924, my mother's brother, George F. Hurd, a successful New York lawyer, presented an early 14th century manuscript of English statutes, beginning with Edward I's confirmation of the Magna Carta. It is a book of exceptional interest, beautifully illuminated, of Durham origin, and a worthy companion to the Wycliffe Bible and the Blickling homilies. Then my father's sister, my Aunt Gertrude S. Cowell, on two Christmases around 1930, presented a beautifully illuminated 1466 Fuss and Schaefer Cicero De Officiis and a Wendelin of Spire Virgil of about 1471. Big brother did not conceal his annoyance at baby sisters spending so much money so I like to suppose uh, all baby sisters do, she stopped. Nevertheless, these are three magnificent gifts. Turning now to Americana, we may mention manuscripts and autographs. Among the first that should be mentioned is the Lexington Alarm, undoubtedly copied on the morning of April 19, 1775, as the horseman was resting to carry a new copy on a fresh horse to the next town and to spread the news eventually all the way to Georgia that the American Revolution had begun. There is a fine series of letters by the 17th century missionary to the Massachusetts Indians, John Eliot. An interesting letter of the Quaker governor, William Penn, 
dealing with the problem of repelling an invasion for pacifists to think about, a Quaker pacifists to think about. Uh, a fine Washington uh, letter when he was almost in despair about the outcome of the American War. A complete speech draft in Lincoln's hand entitled Sectionalism for Use in the Fremont Buchanan Campaign of 1856. And finally, the telegraph and letter books of General Grant covering late March to April 9, 1865, and including his autographs of the surrender terms of the Army of Northern Virginia. The imprints are heavy in Massachusetts sermons, but there is a Massachusetts Laws of 1660, an Eliot's Indian grammar for anyone who wants to read his Bible, first Bible printed in the Western Hemisphere, and the Williamsburg edition of Washington's Journal, 1755, I think. Perhaps the most exciting Americana is one of the original printed broadsides, the Declaration of Independence. The Mexican imprints go back to, port to 1543. The category great books is a convenient catch-all for miscellany. Presumably, we have already mentioned some great books, for example, the Bible. In literature, we've already mentioned Shakespeare, but now we should add first editions of Milton's Paradise Lost and Gertrude's Faust and other literary works. Science is proliferated, headed by first editions of Copernicus, Galileo, and Newton, as well as Darwin and numerous others. Straddling uh, literature and religion comes a very great copy of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. The unadorned but spotless first edition was our contribution to the exhibition Printing in the Mind of Man, held in London in 1963. Uh, turning to religion proper, we find a 16th century well represented with Luther's Theses, Calvin's Institutes, 1536, and a March uh, 1547 Edward VI prayer book, as well as presentation copies of its Swingley tract and a Luther 1541 Bible. Here, it should be belatedly remarked that until the death of my grandmother, I do not believe that either my father or my grandfather employed any person as secretary or librarian. But in late 1921, the new burdens of estate work and details of how to house acquisition, alterations, and moving necessitated the employment of such a person, a World War I widow who remained until 1930, by which time she had remarried. To replace her came a young graduate of that, that year from the College of Worcester in Ohio, Minor Risi, who remained until after my father's death, when she eventually left to become assistant editor of the Jefferson Papers and married Samuel S. Bryan, Jr. We will hear about her again later. My father was concerned about publishing a facsimile of his uni unique Latin Calixtus Bull and was developing plans with his librarian, Minor Risi, for her to do research in New York that would enable a project Cups. The doctors were mystified. The possibilities of allergies or, or side effects of drug use did not occur to them. One morning at about 6 a.m., he suffered a severe heart attack and died. I have since read of a case involving a man who was similarly afflicted but did not die, and who eventually discovered that his terrible hiccups were caused directly by being allergic to sulfur drugs. But the hiccups my father had could well have been enough to have disturbed the healthiest heart and dislodged something sufficiently to clog a crucial coronary artery. I'm convinced he died because of the hiccups caused by an allergy to sulfur drugs. And so by default, I come to myself. And so at last, I come to myself. My name is William Hurd Scheide. 
I was born in 1914, as you may have inferred from uh, something I said previously. My first eight years were spent in the Main Street house in Titusville, Pennsylvania. My room looked out over the smoking room wing, and its chimney was a prominent feature. Probably my first recollection of anything to do with the family library was fright, when during stormy nights, the metal ventilator at the top of the chimney squeaked when the wind whirled it around. I do not remember the smoking room without the safe in its corner. On top of the safe was a bronze replica of the Venus de Milo. We still have it. One morning, on looking through the glass door, we spied a live owl perched on Venus's head. I forget how it was removed. As you can see, at least in this story, that chimney was a contributing cause of my grandfather's death, my fright, and the intrusion of an owl. In those days, my father had books, mostly inherited from my grandfather, that needed repair. To this task would come periodically a most picturesque old gentleman, Mr. Edwin C. Bell, who lived in a ramshackle house built of overlapping vertical black clabbards or planks situated on the edge of town. Uh, Mr. Bell had had a varied career, most of which I have forgotten, but he knew about people such as William Caxton and had sequestered for posterity many mementos of the early oil industry, in particular hundreds of glass plate photographic negatives dating back to 1860, a unique record at the beginning of a major industry. He was a small old man with long white hair and white beard. Perhaps he looked like a gnome, but because I was even smaller, I never thought of him as one. He spread out newspapers on the nice rugs on which he placed pots of whitish paste and went to work. I watched fascinated. Naturally, I was also fascinated by the construction work, particularly the library building that occurred in 1922. The principal bricklayer, Allie New, showed me how to lay a brick, and I laid one all by myself. There were stone carvers hammering out gargoyles in imitation of New College, Oxford, and any number of exciting things going on. My father read Scott and Cooper to me, but on my own, I preferred Jules Verne. My grand grandfather had acquired more readable copies of the latter author. My mother had a lovely singing voice, and if her life had been a little different, might have had, might have had something of a musical career. She would sing to me when putting me to bed, and when she finished, I would say, again? According to her, that was my first word. One time, we were at the old Chelsea Hotel in pre-casino Atlantic City, and some musicians were playing up in a balcony overlooking the lobby. I sat in my mother's lap, looking up fascinated and absorbed. When they stopped, I broke into frightful wailing and yelling. This, to put it mildly, embarrassed my parents, who hurried me out of the lobby, up the elevator, into our room, and into the closet, where I screamed until I ran out of breath. Years later, apparently I was about one and a half years old, although I remember it well, when they asked, why did you yell so? I could, would always answer truthfully and immediately because they stopped playing. Those of us old enough to remember such things can testify that a phenomenon of the 1920s was the radio. One program I listened to was the New York conductor Walter Damrosch discoursing on Wagner's Ring of the Nibelungs. My father knew about it and may also have listened occasionally. In the spring of 1927, he received an auction catalog announcing the coming sale of the autograph orchestral score of Das Rheingold, the first of the four ring operas. Nothing like that had ever entered the shoddy library. But he discussed it with his 13-year-old son and decided to enter a bid. I did not suggest a figure. He was rather surprised when he got it, and I inclined to think it was a bargain. It is the only Wagner opera score in this country. My father introduced me to several of his book friends. 
I knew Bella da Costa Green at the Pierpont Morgan Library, Dr. Rosenbach, and the great bibliographer Seymour de Ricci, who during a trip we made to Europe in 1933 gave us lunch in his Paris apartment and showed me and my father specimens of 15th century type dug out of the river at Lyon. He gave us a lowercase p to my father, which we still have, and then took us to the Bibliothèque Nationale, into which, as far as I know, my father had never before penetrated, and showed us the dated Rubicator's inscriptions by Henry Kramer in one of their 42-line Bibles. On the same tri trip, I met Leo Oschke, my grandfather's old friend, in Geneva. But as we drove by Eton College in England, my father motioned toward the library and said wistfully, there's a Gutenberg Bible in there. He was wistful because he had no way of getting in to see it. By 1935, when I was at Princeton and immersed in Beethoven, in my opinion, a justifiable expression of youthful exuberance and ripening, he discussed with me a Goldschmidt catalog offering six leaves of sketches for Beethoven's Hammerklavier Sonata, Opus 106. We got it. In 1940, I received an MA degree in musicology right here at Columbia University and taught music then uh, thereafter at Cornell for two years. My father's sudden death at that time brought me, my family, and myself back to Titusville to assume an only grandchild's responsibilities as executor and trustee during the war years. My defective eyesight twice disqualified me from military service. In 1946, my family moved to Princeton, New Jersey, leaving my mother in the library in Titusville to start and direct the Bach Aria Group. I discovered, what I, what I still believe, that Bach was about as well known as Shakespeare would be if there were no theater. When I compared myself to my father, I noted that I had suffered from no disease such as his tuberculosis, that my aunt and uncle had both died, and I was the sole beneficiary of her income as well as a good share of my father's. I wanted to make a contribution of my own. This took my mind off the library for several years. If I received book catalogs, I probably threw them away. I do not remember. The first one I do remember was about 1954, from H.P. Krauss offering a, quote, proof sheet, unquote, of the 42-line Bible. I telephoned and was, of course, told it had been sold to George Poole of Chicago. It, it, it has ended up in Bloomington, Indiana. I said, um, how come? Don't you know I own one? But Mr. Scheide, you have been buying books lately. So I got over that and shortly bought a 1459 Durandus and a few other books in the 50s and carried them to Titusville. In 1959, my mother died at the age of 86, thus severing my last human link with Titusville. We spent the summer sorting the co contents of the house and library, disposing of what we did not want by gift or sale, and moving the residue to Princeton. A room for the books was made available in the Firestone Library at the university. One in incident that touched me that summer was a motor trip by John and Joe Fleming, the book dealer from New York, who started with Dr. Rosenbach, to see the library before it was broken up, as it had been in the days of Dr. Rosenbach, my father, and John's apprenticeship. And a nice epilogue to a sad and difficult year was the return of Minor Bryan to the library, where she remained until her death early this year. She has since been succeeded by Janet Ng, formerly head of the special collections at Mills College, Oakland, California, who's here today. Um, but the university, but to go back to 1959, the Princeton University could not be expected to offer us really adequate space. Conditions were unreasonably crowded, there was no humidity control, and 
bindings are in great danger of disintegrating. So a plan for financing was arranged, a convenient location on the roof discovered, and the university made its architect available so that the present room, <coughs> adjacent to the university's own special collections and subject to the same degree of security and humidity control, could be constructed. This project was finished in 1964. It, in it were installed parts of the library bought, brought in 1959 from Titusville. Steel shelving and cabinet work, carved wood panels and stained glass windows. The present room thus recreated, to a certain extent, some of the atmosphere of the Titusville room. But with its two exhibition cases and adjoining offices set off with glass panels, is adapted to other uses than were relevant in Titusville. 26 years ago, I went on my first book trip, the Grolier Club trip to England in 1959. I never forget the trip to Oxford, a busload of Grolierites dri driving up Cat Street and squeezing, that is the bus, squeezing through the arch into the very courtyard of the old Bodleian to be welcomed by a crowd of waiting dignitaries. I have never seen a bus there before or since. But I thought of my father when we were welcomed so cordially by the great headmaster of Eton, Robert Burley, and I was allowed to finger the Johannes Vogel binding of their 42-line Bible, so similar except in color to my own. How he would have loved to have been there. The way that the great European libraries have been open to book lovers in recent years is something that both my father and my grandfather would have found unbelievable. The Grolier Club started it. Who will ever forget Leonardo's original Codex Atlanticus spread naked on a table in the Ambrosian Library in Milan for the fondling of the crudest book lover? And they were fondling it in a disgusting manner. I saw them do it. <laughs> or the dinner in the Bavarian State Library in Munich against a backdrop of books whose brilliance was positively blinding. Seeing such things has become one of the greatest privileges that a bibliophile can possess. Though I believe the three of us were agreed on several fundamentals of the collection, each of us has exercised individual quirks and preferences. My grandfather liked newspaper files and medieval documents. My father stuck to the importance of Gutenberg's invention and Columbus's discovery. I got interested in music. As mentioned, my father responded, and now the musical autographs, including Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, and Wagner, are the, really the crown of the general autograph collection. But I would say that is the nearest thing to a new direction that I have given to the library. I have made additions to most of the earlier categories, but the principal ones have been in manuscripts and in cannabula, strength building it on strength, as I have heard said before. I will mention what I think are the main ones. In manuscripts, I have supplemented the Blickling homilies with an Anglo-Saxon will of about 1970. It is a fascinating document made by a lady named Ethel Gifu, in which the testatrix says, asks that Edwin the priest be freed, indicating, among other things, that she had a priest who was her slave. Another manuscript I would like to mention is a pocket-sized book, Vellum Codex, in Coptic uncial letters of Matthew's Gospel of probably the fifth century. I wish my father could have seen that. It would have helped to satisfy his wish for an early New Testament text. The musical point of view is also significant in that it contains a very early text of the Gloria in both Greek and Coptic. In addition to the words, we praise thee, we bless thee, we adore thee, we glorify thee, there is added in the margin, we sing hymns to thee. The final manuscript is a nicely illuminated Old Testament, an alternating Hebrew and Aramaic, 
written in the 14th century, probably in Germany. I've already mentioned the 1459 Durandus, which belongs to that exclusive group of incunabula before 1460. To that should be added a nice double-leaf fragment of a Donatus in 36-line type. But of course, the ideal purchase has been the two great Sollers of 1457 and 59, which occurred in 1971. Neither is complete, but both go way beyond being merely respectable books. When asked what is my favorite book, I usually reply, the 1457 Psalter. It is really majestic. These four items bring the number of German imprints before 1460 to 10. Another incunabulum of no mean importance is Caxton's Recule of the Histories of Troy, very possibly the first book printed in English about 1473, but undated. With that, I will bring my list to a close. Growing up with, inheriting, and developing such a collection has created for me feelings of humility, responsibility, and love. As Milton said in his great area, Pagetica, a first edition of which is in the library, a good book is the precious lifeblood of a master spirit, embalmed and treasured up on purpose to a life beyond life. A great deal has been composed and could be added upon that noble theme. But perhaps I'd better end with a controversial word from my paradoxical grandfather, the omnivorous reader and founder of the Shady Library. Men cannot, by reading books, become either honest or honorable. The life of a good man is worth more to the state than all the books and all its libraries. Thank you. Somebody suggested to me this afternoon that Mr. Shadi quite possibly has the greatest library in private hands in this country. And I think it's a pleasure for all of us to listen to him talk about it. Will you all join us for a glass of wine in 523?